Most of us in this room are familiar with the six principles of Wycliffe College. This is a summary of some of the doctrinal principles of the English Reformation. They include the supremacy of scripture, justification by grace through faith alone, the church as the blessed company of all faithful people, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, the priesthood of all believers, and the presence of Christ in the hearts of those who faithfully receive communion. There's one principle of the Reformation that's missing from this list, a principle that was repeated again and again by the reformers, a principle which for some of them was the most important principle of all. That's the principle that the Pope is Antichrist. To be clear, I'm personally very happy that the principle was not included in the six principles of Wycliffe College. In retrospect, it's one of the great embarrassments of the Reformation. And that raises the question why we are talking about it this morning. And the reason is that uh, our Sunday, our Thursday morning homilies have been organized around themes of the Reformation. And mostly we've congratulated the Reformation uh, on rediscovering truths of the gospel. But there's another side to the Reformation, a darker side. A few weeks ago at the TST-wide worship service, uh, we got together and we prayed about the Reformation, both to celebrate it and to repent it. And both those sides are there. The fact is the Reformation devolved into two opposing sides that didn't listen to each other, that condemned each other, and that ultimately went to war against each other. It wasn't just that the reformers said to their adversaries, we're right and you're wrong, which would kind of be bad enough, but they said, we're on God's side and you are ruled by the Antichrist, and then used scripture as a weapon. Facing this dark side is an important thing to do. And uh, I wouldn't say that I personally volunteered for the task this morning, but I'm glad that it's being done. Pretty much all the reformers affirm that the Pope is the Antichrist, except for the ones who said that the office of the papacy was Antichrist and not just any one individual Pope. And except for the ones who said that the Pope and his minions were Antichrists in the plural, or a collective Antichrist. And except for the gentler reformers who said more modestly that the Antichrist works through the office of the papacy. Despite the variations, the main theme was this. If you want to find the Antichrist, go to the Vatican. Luther emphasized it. It's in the Schmalkald Articles, the doctrinal confessional statement that was developed when Lutheran territories banded together in 1531. And the Schmalkald Articles were put into the main confessional statement of the Lutheran world, the book that's chiefly called the Book of Concord. The Pope as Antichrist got a whole chapter in Calvin's Institutes. The last words of a 67-year-old Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, the main author of our Book of Common Prayer, as he was being burned at the stake on the instructions of a Roman Catholic Queen of England were, as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and Antichrist with all his false doctrine. For centuries, Anglicans knew that whatever else we were, we weren't papists. That was a cornerstone of our identity. Other Protestant churches thought the same. To me, growing up in the years before Vatican II, the gulf between Roman Catholics and Protestants felt about as wide as the Atlantic Ocean. 
after school if I wanted to go play with uh, Jewish kids or with kids of an ethnic minority, that was okay. But playing with Roman Catholic kids was kind of suspect. Our two scripture readings this morning are representative of about a dozen passages that were used by the reformers to think about the Antichrist. Now, the term Antichrist actually appears only in the two uh, first epistles of John. There it's usually used in the singular, but also in the plural, to refer to one who will come when the end is near and will deny that Jesus is the incarnate word of God and will embody opposition to Jesus. Other passages in the Bible began to be attached to the idea of Antichrist, even if they didn't use that particular term. So in the passage we just heard from Daniel, which is part of Daniel's vision of four beasts coming out of the sea, the fourth is a terrifying beast, part human, part animal, with ten horns, and he makes war on the saints until he is conquered. The other passage we heard this morning from Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, again, doesn't actually use the term Antichrist, but talks of the person of lawlessness, the lawless one, who will take his seat in the temple of God and then declare that he himself is God. Two apocalyptic passages in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, which speak of a false messiah, have also been attached to the idea of Antichrist. And there are other passages in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Revelation that have also been seen as prophecies of the Antichrist. And because the Antichrist was to come at the end of human history, it was often part of passionate discussions about what will happen when Christ comes again. Uh, and of course, these discussions are continuing to go on today. Some of the reformers were very interested in that kind of millennial expectation, and others weren't, but just so as not to get too complicated, I won't talk about the millennial expectations, but just about this identity of the Antichrist. Even before the Reformation, there was actually a centuries-long history of people thinking that the Pope was Antichrist. The more the papacy asserted its authority and uh, the more worldly it got, the more discontent there was in many quarters. By about 1200, when Pope Innocent III was declaring that those who were disobedient to the Pope were outside the church and therefore could not be saved, people began to think that he was putting obedience to Peter above obedience, obedience to Christ. And the optics got even worse during the Renaissance when a series of ultra-worldly, more or less debauched popes came along. So it looked to many as if, indeed, a person who represented the opposite of Christian morality and doctrine had taken up a place of honor in the temple of God and was preempting the authority of Christ that we find in scriptures. Probably the most influential of the medieval writers along these lines was John Wycliffe and Oxford Don. He was writing during the great Western schism when there were two rival popes, one in Rome and one in Avignon in what's now southern France, and different countries in their different alliances supported different popes, which made the papacy look totally worldly and political. And Wycliffe came up with 12 antitheses to show that the pope was the opposite of Christ and therefore the Antichrist. Here are a few of them. Christ is the truth. The pope teaches falsehood. Christ embraces poverty. The pope embraces wealth. Christ values gentleness and humility. 
the Pope sends out armed crusades. Christ establishes the law of love. The Pope promulgates laws that oppress the faithful. Christ sends missionaries into the world. The Pope sanctions monasteries where people leave the world. Christ renounces secular power. The Pope claims dominion over all kingdoms. Christ renders unto Caesar. The Pope disputes the power of kings and emperors. Christ chose 12 humble disciples. The Pope appoints rich worldly cardinals. Christ willingly suffers. The Pope wages war. Christ serves others. The Pope demands homage. Wycliffe's own conclusion from this is that the real Church of Christ isn't the venal institution that identifies itself as the Church. The real Church of Christ is the company of the elect. And since we don't know for sure until the last day who is among the company of the elect, the true Church is invisible. In particular, Wycliffe says, we have no way of knowing in this life that the Pope is among the elect. So obeying him is dangerous. So there's a truth in identifying a church leader, a church leadership as antichrist. It's true that our churches sometimes go astray and sometimes badly astray and wind up opposing the things of Christ. It's true that a worldly church controlled by people who are lacking in Christian integrity and faith and morals stands against the gospel of Christ, not for it. It's antichrist, not pro-Christ. It's an obstruction to the gospel. The falsehood in all this, though, is to think that this state of affairs inheres only in other people's churches, not our own. The falsehood is to think that if we go into schism and make a church for ourselves, we can avoid sin and worldliness and faithlessness, faithlessness and do things right. Schism starts out looking for reform and renewal, but it winds up in self-righteousness and self-justification and calling outsiders the Antichrist. The danger is that we can filter out the anti-Christian history of our own denomination. For instance, in our case, the way the Anglican Church of Canada has benefited so much financially uh, from its interests in land that was seized from indigenous peoples and then thinks of all kinds of reasons why it shouldn't make restitution. A couple of weeks ago, uh, the Methodist theologian Stanley Hauerwas wrote a column in the Washington Post about his confusion about what the Protestant Reformation means and points out that uh, in a way that the reformers could not have predicted, the Catholic Church no longer looks like it's ruled by Antichrist, but sometimes our Protestant churches look like they are. The way he puts it is that Protestantism won. Today, just years after the Second Vatican Council, the Roman Catholic Church clearly affirms the authority of scripture, the centrality of Christ, it worships in the language of the people, it certainly doesn't sell indulgences anymore. So he asks, why aren't we Catholic? The current situation in some ways for Protestants is just as venal in its, uh, as, as it was uh, in how the reformers criticized the Catholic Church for being. He says each, each Protestant church tries to be just different enough from other Protestant churches to attract an increasingly diminishing market share. In fact, he says the Roman Catholic Church is pretty attractive because it has an intellectually rich theological tradition that can negotiate the acids of our culture. The best he can offer 
is that the church needs faithful outsiders who are free to critique it. That's the principle that the church is always reforming, always being reformed, which practically speaking means that not all of us should be co-opted by the status quo. So the scriptures about the Antichrist are first of all a reality check telling us that the gospel of Christ has its enemies. And some of those enemies, in fact the main worry that we have is some of those enemies sit in the temple of God. Secondly, they give us the gospel of hope, the knowledge that in the end the Antichrist will be vanquished and God's sovereignty over all creation will be clearly seen. And when we look at how the doctrine of the Antichrist was used in the Reformation, especially when we look at it in the context of what scriptures tell us about our own inclinations to justify ourselves and to excuse our sins and to overlook the beam in our own eye, it's also an invitation to be discerning and wise about whom we decide to follow and whom we decide to accuse. For that warning, for that hope, for that invitation, thanks be to God.